Support for this podcast comes from Diversity Fund. Diversity Fund is an investment platform that allows everyday Americans the opportunity to invest directly into commercial real estate deals with the goal to help close the wealth gap and enable all Americans the ability to achieve financial freedom. Go to www.diversityfund.com and use the offer code invest in the US when you sign up for an account and receive a $20 gift card when you make your first investment. That's diversifund.com, D-I-V-E-R-S-Y-F-U-N-D.com. Now back into the show. Really all like centers around my mission of trying to provide um, better opportunities for families through housing and then also empowerment of residents. That I think is so powerful. Like the, the, the housing is one thing, but it's actually the ability to give them the education that is going to stay with them for the rest of their lives. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately created extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Evan Holiday. Evan is a real estate developer and investor who has been involved with the acquisition and development of over $225 million worth of US multifamily. Evan is passionate about providing working families a good quality, affordable place to call home. Providing affordable housing is part of Evan's mission and part of his big why. Evan is also the host of a great top-ranked podcast called Monumental. You should definitely check that out after you listen to this show today. But enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Evan. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Yes, doing good, man. Thank you so much for having me on the show. My pleasure. Um, as I said earlier, uh, before we had to you know, du- double record here, is that I had the pleasure of being on your show a little while ago, and uh, I really, really enjoyed it. So I hope today I can reciprocate and we can have an incredible show 
here, a bunch of fun, d- dive into some awesome topics. And um, yeah, but the first question I ask all my uh, guests when they come on the show is rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Yeah, so I love this question. So really, for me, it all started with, I was pretty young, I can't remember the age, but uh, I started selling candy at the top of my street to anybody that was walking by and bought a big bulk bag of candy, worked it up probably 100% and sold it to anybody walking by and actually recruited some friends and uh, were paying them in candy to, to help me sell the candy. And from there, it snowballed into selling popcorn for the Cub Scouts and selling curbside paintings and lawn care and kind of everything in between. Awesome. Awesome. Well, walk us through where you've come from. You've you've clearly created an awesome real estate brand for yourself. um, And you've been involved with $225 million worth of multifamily real estate on both the acquisition and the development side. But maybe walk us through the journey because that's what the show is all about. We want to understand your journey, where you've come from, and maybe a bit of the vulnerabilities uh, in which you've experienced along the way in order to get to where you are today. Yeah, this I love this question. So really, it all started for me uh, at a at a young age with my parents building building a foundation for me of becoming who I am today. Uh, I was blessed with two very loving and supportive parents, and and I really credit a lot of who I am today to to, to them. And for me, it, it you know my mom was very entrepreneurial. She was very driven. She wanted to give back and impact the world in meaningful ways. She started many companies. She started nonprofits. Uh, and she really, like, she had an impact on so many people. Uh, and that, in turn, was passed on to me just by being around her and, and learning from her. And, and so her and my dad both really taught me the power of, of just loving people and, and treating people with respect and, and finding the good in people. Um, and that has really just kind of been a basis for, for who I was growing up. Um, and so I, I originally wanted to get into pre-med and medicine after a, a pretty bad soccer injury left me getting a knee surgery. And from there, I went into, went into college at University of Louisville. And about a year into it, I was taking all these science and chemistry classes. And I was like, you know what? this is not for me at all. Like I, I want to impact people, but not with, not with this. I hate this. So um, I saw this $55 million development going in on campus. It had just been announced. I was like that, that is what I want to be doing. That's where, you know, that's where my passion lies. I don't know what it is, but I love that. And so I just kind of ran with it. I said, okay, well, you know, let's find the owner, found the owner, got a connection, you know, convinced him to give me, shot and it wasn't just like he would give me a job you know I had to show my value to him and that really came about where he's like bring some people out to the groundbreaking and so I ended up bringing out like a few hundred people and after that he's like okay you're on like we'll we'll take you on so I learned you know soup to nuts like A to Z development um, property management we leased up 380 units in like five months it was ridiculous. Like there was just experiences that I had there that helped propel me to learn so much of the business. And from there, I was like, well, let's, let's try to do this on our own. So we, myself and four other people started a um, modular development company in college. And we built out this company and we started pitching it to venture capitalists. And they're like, Hey, you guys got something here. Like keep running with this. 
and built a few single family and then we were like well let's let's take this up to multifamily and that's when uh finding partners i found a group ldg development and had worked with them for over six years and really learned uh, about workforce housing about affordable housing and you know that's really where i cut my teeth of learning from the best of the best one of the top developers in the country and learning how to source deals, how to pull in equity, how to rezone property, how to how to build 240 units at a time. So that's really where I learned a lot of what I know today. And now propelling to today with my own company, Holiday Ventures, and now looking at both new construction, workforce, and affordable housing, and being able to create uh, values through acquiring existing properties and either value adding them or turning them back into tax credit or workforce housing property really all like centers around my mission of trying to provide um, better opportunities for families through housing and then also empowerment of residents that i think is so powerful like the, the the housing is one thing but it's actually the ability to give them the education that is going to stay with them for the rest of their lives and being able to, you know, instill a lot of the personal development, like what we talk about on podcasts, you know, what, what you and I talked about on Monday. like those types of things, I think would be so powerful in the right minds of our residents and help empowering them to think bigger, to, you know, grow their mindset, to learn about financial literacy, like so many of these things that they may not be thinking about day in, day out and helping empowering them to live a better life. So. That's it in a nutshell. <laughs> that's uh, that's an incredible story, mate. Like, and and really goes to a big pat on the back to yourself to going and figuring out how to do it right. Like, you you saw something, you went and you know, handed a, an owner who probably told you to, to piss off a lot of times until you until he gave you a job. But you had to prove again, you yep. had to prove your worth, and you got some you got a bunch of people to the groundbreaking. But I love also how you pivoted. Right, you thought you had this idea in your head that you were going to go into pre-med um, but you saw something else and you ran with it and that's that's really really incredible I think that is something a lot of people can take away from from your story is about that that ability to, to identify something that resonates with them and then go off and create a business out of it because not everyone has that type of mindset that you have um, but a little bit in and around about the modular housing I really was quite interested about that given that I'm you know I have a structural engineering background right. Um, tell me a little bit more about the modular housing and, and, and how you stumbled into that in, in college. Because you know, what were you studying to be studying stumbling into <laughs> modular housing? Uh, well, you're not going to believe this, but I was studying economics. Uh, so <laughs> I was an economics degree with an entrepreneur minor, and that entrepreneurship program they encouraged you to start your own business. So that was really kind of the got the ball moving in our minds of like, okay, well, what kind of business would we want to start? And I was infatuated. I love real estate at this point. I was working for the developer, um, working on that $55 million development. So, you know, we were like, well, let's do something real estate. And then our professor happened to have a relationship with another professor at University of Kentucky who they were teaching a class on literally designing out modular housing. So they started the idea. So that's the other thing too, is like, you don't necessarily always have to come up with the idea you can take other people's ideas and run with it and partner with them so we actually got permission got the rights to their plans they had already come up with all these plans for single family and multi-family modular housing 
and we we said, hey, we want to commercialize what you guys are actually doing in the classroom. So we got free plans, you know, basically free. They were doing it for a class project and professors and students were both doing these plans. And so we said, we want to build that into a business. And they said, yeah, run with it. And we, the unique thing about these plans is they weren't just modular. They were modular built in a houseboat manufacturing plant. So Kentucky, where I went to school, the state of Kentucky, they have a like mecca of houseboat manufacturing plants, believe it or not. And they had just laid off 1,100 skilled workers at all these plants with the housing market crash. So we're like, how can we put those same people back to work, use the same existing facilities that are now like mostly dormant and use the same, literally the same layout as a houseboat. It's the same rectangular shape and turn that into single family or multifamily housing. So we did a few trial runs with the single family. We're like, well, the real scale ability of all this is in multifamily. And so that's when we were really trying to prove our concept in Louisville, Kentucky. And that's when LDG is like, well, how about you partner with us and do some stuff for workforce and affordable housing? So the idea kind of stopped there, but it's something that's always been in the back of my head that I really want to pursue um, so that, that will probably be something that we at least, um, venture into as far as, you know, seeing if it's economical to, to do that. I think, you know, it has to make sense on the right project and, you know, it has to be uh, a competitive enough market where, um, you know, frame build on-site construction just is too expensive, you know, where we can find right. some efficiencies. Maybe there's a factory right nearby the, the job site. You know, if we can find something like that, then I would really love to take advantage of that. Um, on one of our future development sites. Awesome. So you haven't, it, just, it was all in the concept stage and you never actually took it to uh, a marketable business, right? Yeah, we built some single family uh, that was more of like a, you know, proof of concept uh, with a nonprofit partner. So we didn't actually build out a full business. We were in the works to build that out on the, on the multifamily side, um, but had an opportunity to work for one of the top developers in the country. So I took it and ran with it. <laughs> well, mate, it's always going to be there when you go back. But I, I know, as a structural engineer, I worked for a, a big developer in, in LA here, and um, I actually went to a couple of work, uh, job sites where they were doing modular housing. A company called Gurdon, um, who's I think based out of Arizona, but did all the manufacturing and warehouses in Arizona. Would ship them across here to. It was actually in Torrance, California. It was a hotel, two hundred and fifty doors. And uh, it was everything came on the back of a truck. Like they had uh, uh, these two, two, two types of, of call it hotel rooms. And literally the bed was inside with the TV strapped to the bed. Yeah. That's how much modular they've got. And they just had to back them onto the corridor. And the corridor is where they sort of all the, the, the HVAC and all the electrical and all the plumbing came and they'd run them down the corridor. And that's how you could get the local labor unions to be on board because that was the last piece of the puzzle right you had everything built in factories but it only stopped at the doorway at the right. threshold right. once it com- once it hit the the corridor if you think of a you know like a, a hyatt house or something like that we have a corridor down the hall uh, down the hotel hall, um, hallway that's in the ceiling that's where all the 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 hvac and all the plumbing is run right and so it was really interesting to see that come together um but also the there is a little bit of redundancy of, of materials in modular housing because you have 
double floors, you have double walls. And, and right. that is where something, you know, you're slightly, you're slightly going to be tall and you're slightly going to be wider because you're doubling everything up. Yeah. Um, but really super, super interesting. I think the, the, the industry in ground up construction needs to go that direction um, because there's just so much waste on site. If you've ever been to a stick built and when yeah. I say stick built, wood framed, multifamily garden style, there's so much waste on site and, and just the cost of it is, is astronomical. And, um, the and if you can get, you know, the timeline, right? The scheduling. So if you can get your stuff started to be prefabbed in the, the the warehouses and then shipped to site and then sort of put it together like Meccano sets or Lego, um, it's going to obviously save a lot. The, the theory is good. And I've not seen a company yet who's gone out and executed. There's another big company that raised, I think, over a billion dollars and was trying to be the Amazon of construction modular housing. Um, I forgot their name and it's going to rack my brain. But um, if anyone's listening, please leave it in the, you know, in yeah, the comments. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. I can't think of them either. <laughs> They they was out in California here. They they raised a ton of money. I'm going to think of it, and it's going to come to me after the show. But anyway, Katera, <laughs> Katara, that's it. Yeah, Boom, yeah, yeah. you got it. Katera, yes, yes. Katera is is a company that my old boss, who's a developer, used to was was partnering with on on a couple of projects. Um, all sounds good, but when it came to the nuts and bolts of approval process and understanding local city councils and getting it yeah. approved, because that's the other thing is that you've got to have local. Uh, officials and build, building and safety officials understanding what is being built off site. And particularly if you're going across borders and states, different states have different building codes to some extent. So making sure you have the checks and balances before they do, you know, uh, do up the walls and, and all the plumbing is correct and all the electric, all electricity and electrical is being wired correctly, that is really, really important because that could be a life safety hazard thing. And that's it's 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 obviously the the ball's rolling. The train is slowly starting to leave the station. It's just about you know municipalities catching up with the safety. So I'd, I do yeah. go on because it's it's something that's very very interesting to me because um, as we as we become a bigger population, we're trying to cram a lot more into smaller spaces, uh, and and the cost of housing is going up, and that's a big yeah. big part of why you're on this show. And, so talk to me that, a little bit about that. What? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say that goes back to the to part of my why is like the affordable housing, like, you know, affordable housing is simply a supply and demand problem. And we can't build fast enough in the areas where people want to move partially because of politics, but also partially because of cost, right? Of like cost of construction and time it takes to build. Um, so if there's any way that we can with modular speed up the timeline and speed, you know, lower our costs, then that could be a game changer for affordable housing. Hundred percent, hundred percent. So, tell me a little bit more about that. This why within you, like, why do you want to help the average person get into affordable housing? And then we're going to dovetail that into the more the mindset side of it. But let's start with the why on the what exactly you just said, the politics and the cost. Give me your give me your background on, on how you got to that point. Yeah. So it, it it you know like like everything else in life, I think it it came to me through uh, a journey. Um, but I think the, the biggest thing for me is like, I think everybody is built for massive change in the world. Uh, and that's part of why I called my podcast monumental. You know, I, I, I truly believe that we can all make monumental change in the world and really make a difference. And I feel like this, you know, this passion of mine for development and real estate and multifamily and being able to marry that with the ability to actually not just build like luxury, you know, class A or, or condominium beautiful places, which would be fun, 
but it just doesn't seem fulfilling enough for me where I, I get the true benefit of knowing that I'm actually helping somebody. Um, and that's what means a lot to me is actually helping somebody on their journey, on their path towards a better life for their family or their kids. And so that's where, you know, coming across affordable workforce housing, we started learning about it when we first did the modular housing and basically just, you know, sat down with nonprofits, sat down with uh, affordable developers, sat down with housing authorities who administer all the, all the permanent supportive housing. Like there is, there is real demand for it. And, and not only that, there's also, um, there's also just in, there's an ability to actually like make a, a real impact with people and get to do what I love every day with real estate and, and multifamily investing. So it, it, it is the perfect marriage between those two. And, and really, like I said, I think everybody can make a massive impact in the world. And, and so that's my goal is to, to help more people reach that. So tell me more about the, the, there's a huge demand, right? We, but we're constantly being hurt here in the news and the media that, you know, California is too expensive, New York's too expensive, San Francisco too expensive. So what are local municipalities doing? What are these nonprofits doing? What are governments doing to try and change that? Because the cost of housing isn't going to go down, right? Like it's like insurance. You just constantly yeah. keep going. It's inflation, right? You're going to, things keep getting more and more expensive year over year. So does the cost to build stuff. So does the cost to buy that land. So what it, what what's the, what are some of the solutions you've heard being kicked around some of these meetings that you've been president? Yeah. So, you know, just paying attention to different cities and working in many different cities, um, you start to see kind of what works and what doesn't work. And really the, there's a few things that really can lead to like actual change in affordable housing because you're right. I mean, you know, it goes back to supply and demand. Like we, we literally aren't building near enough what we need to be um, to keep the equilibrium of what is needed for affordable housing and, and what is actually provided. Um, so I think it comes down to, it's really like the financing that's in place. So there needs to be more incentives from the state city and county level. So what we've done on the city and county level recently has been because the the, the federal level has not helped out at all. Um, they've been, you know, kind of kept the status quo uh, really like the last 10 years as far as funding availability. And, and in some cases, the funding has actually gone down. So it's really like the, the responsibility has been shifted over to the cities and the states and really more so the cities. Um, so really it's like, especially the fast growing cities, the Austins, the LA's, the San Francisco's, like the cities where a lot of people are moving right now, um, it's really being put on them. And so one thing we've been doing in Texas um, and all over the Southeast is doing tax abatements, partnerships with the cities or, or city agencies where they take partial ownership and in return, we get a full or most of our taxes abated for 10 to 15 to 20 years. So that is a way where, you know, put that into your pro forma and real estate taxes are typically one of your biggest expenses and they, they typically grow every time you get reassessed. So imagine having a cap on that and basically saying whatever we're paying on the land today or whatever we're paying on the property now that's freezed for the next 10 to 20 years. So that is tremendous for our loan sizing so we can borrow way more money, sometimes, you know, $2 million more 
it's basically like almost like a TIF, a tax increment finance deal, where we're borrowing more money because we're upfront and being able to pay for the development by foregoing taxes for the next 10 to 20 years. So that's been a huge right. tool that we've been able to use over, over multiple municipalities. Um, but so that's one thing is creative financing. Uh, the other one is uh, more uh, incentivized zoning for workforce and affordable housing. That's something that not very many cities are doing, but if there's uh, one thing that I've experienced time and time again uh, is that everybody wants affordable housing until it's in their backyard. And it's a, <laughs> it's a very like every single time, almost every single time it happens, unless you have like strong political leaders, like city council members or mayors that really like understand the need and are willing to help educate their community and their constituents, then you're fighting an uphill battle because, you know, you're dealing with local officials that usually think that you're going to build the 1960s style housing projects and you're going to bring the ghetto and you're going to bring crime and you're, you know, all the opposite things of what we actually build. I mean, what we build is like class A, almost, almost luxury style apartment living. And we're just like one step below that with as far as like, we still have all the same amenities. We have a pool, we have a, um, you know, a park, a park, a playground, a workout center, a business center, a clubhouse. Like this, this is a place I would love to live. And, and a lot of people are just not realizing that we've moved up our standard in affordable housing now where we're actually providing something that's on par with, with luxury housing. So, um, so I think those are two of the biggest things. And then really just trying to, to get people on board and understand what we're doing here. And, and the fact that we're actually serving people that are already in your community and people that are supporting your economy. That's the biggest thing too, is cities are going to realize like, hey, we're starting to lose our you know, mid-level mid uh, workforce because we, we can't house them anywhere and it takes them an hour and a half to get to work each way and they just can't make it to work or they can't afford the gas or they can't afford the car, whatever it is, like they're going to the workforce is going to move out of town to some, somewhere more affordable and then all of a sudden their economy is going to slow down and they're going to be like, well, what happened? And that's where a lot of cities are hitting now. Is they're like, wait a second, we need to hurry up and get caught up on the on the lack of affordable housing because we haven't been paying attention to it for years. So we're starting to hit this like tipping point where most people aren't building affordable. There's not very many incentives, and you have like this um, not in my backyard activity. And with all those things combined, it's like it's really becoming like a national crisis. Even like the, a lot of the presidential candidates have been talking about it being part of their platform. So it's starting mm. to make its way into an actual national topic. G'day guys. I want to interrupt today's episode as I'd like to take a moment to thank our wonderful sponsors. Without their continued support, we would not be able to bring you the most cracking real estate investment tips to help you be successful week in, week out. This month, we have partnered with a cracking, innovative peer-to-peer -peer investment platform called Diversity Fund. At Diversity Fund, their goal is to reduce the wealth gap and enable everyday Americans to achieve financial freedom by investing directly into commercial real estate deals, specifically value-add multifamily. Now, the thing that sets Diversity Fund apart from other peer-to-peer -peer investment platforms is that they offer high-quality investment opportunities without the usual cost of entry.
You can invest with Diversity Fund for as little as 500 bucks. That's it, $500. And the best part is that you're investing alongside operators who are the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? Start investing today and get access to deals that historically have only been available to the top 1%. To find out more, head to diversityfund.com. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-Y-F-U-N-D.com and use offer code invest in the US when you sign up for an account and receive a $20 gift card when you make your first investment. That's diversityfund.com. Now back into the show. You, you talk about so many awesome things there, like so the, the understanding of financing. And if you take away the taxes, you know, think about I, I just underwrote a deal today. There was going to be $900,000 worth of taxes. Now, that's an existing deal. Wow. And that's one thing I want to talk about is like, this is all well and good for new construction, but what about the existing stuff? Like there's these existing properties that are getting traded. They're still good. They can just need maybe a little bit of lick of paint and, you know, it's called lipstick on a pig if you, you know, not everything has to be brand new construction. And so what about those folks right. and those parts of, of, of the, the suburbs and, and, and the cities that, you know, oh, we're, we're, we're going to knock it over and we'll build a new one. Like that, it sort of defeats the purpose in terms of the cost side of it. So how are, how are cities trying to go with, it's well and good for the new side and, and, and we'll talk about that and come back to that in a second. But what about the existing side? Is there anything on that side of the coin that, that, that governments and cities are, are trying to do? Yeah, you're exactly right. Honestly, like that's, that's one of the biggest topics of conversation in the world of affordable and workforce housing is how do we, maintain the affordable housing we already have because a lot of this you know they have a 15 to 30 year compliance period and a lot of these communities are coming off of their compliance period so then the owners can just turn it over and jack up the rents and kick everybody out that's affordable and then you know that that defeats the purpose of the affordable program it helps the owner because they get significant upside um but really what they're what cities and counties and and states and all, all forms of government have been trying to do is trying to incentivize, you know, investors like you and me and your listeners to say, hey, you know, there's there's other options out there where, you know, we, we've looked at deals recently where they currently have on a HAP contract. So we're being able to realize some upside potential. A HAP contract, uh, for those who don't know, is basically like um, it's project-based Section 8 housing for the whole property and you get a contract with the federal government. So you're providing basically almost like permanent supportive housing. Um, and it's it's a different demographic, but you're serving a great purpose and you st- still have the ability to be able to raise your rents with the HAP contract every few years and keep it in line with market. And that way you're still providing affordable housing and still getting that upside that you would see. So there's opportunities like that where you know, we're, we're looking at those right now every day where we can keep existing affordable. And then also you can re-syndicate with more tax credits and basically add on another 15 years, you get more developer fee, you get a whole new round of tax credits to be able to fix up the property and, and have the tax credits pay for that rehab cost and turn for keeping it in the affordable program. So those are some ways that really, really help create or, or extend the life of existing workforce housing. But but honestly, that's a big problem. It really is because there's, I mean, there's a lot of upside if you take a property and turn it market rate. Right. No, it's huge upside, right? And that's and that's the that's the problem we as investors, I do as my part of my business, I my, my fundamental business is going and not 
not having Section 8 housing. I've been in Section 8 housing before. I didn't like it. It was, it was a lot of headache. Um, but there needs to be more incentive, incentivized programs out there for people like myself who can, um, you know, who can go and buy existing properties and make sure that they are still profiting? Because one of the things I was just talking to my attorney today on the for a, from a tax assessment standpoint on one of my properties, we're going and suing the city because every single city is trying to get more taxes out of multifamily housing in yeah. secondary markets. And it's like, what the hell are you doing? Like, excuse me, so I was more like, what the fuck are you doing? Because you're now going to cause me to not want to invest anymore because their taxes are too aggressive and, and counties have been, been I, I know that, and now they have to put a cap on how much they can increase um, the taxes year on year. But still, we as owners have to go and fight them every single year because they're trying to jack it up. Um, it's just, it's, it's super frustrating when on one side, you want to provide a quote-unquote affordable level, right? And on the other side, You've got counties and municipalities wanting to try and profit from us as people have coming in and, and have beautified the properties, and they're just jacking up um, taxes, which makes you know kills the the, the pro forma, kills the NOI, and so it means I'm not going to be able to buy any more deals, and 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 prices are going up anyway. So it's sort of this really weird conundrum we're in right now that it's just we, we're going to have to come to a tipping point at some stage because prices of, of multifamily are still going up and up and up. Cap rates are compressing and so are taxes. So how the hell do you make a deal pencil when rents are relatively steady, you know, 3 4% growth year on year, which is not massive. So yeah, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. Even in, the, even in the affordable side, the cap rates are compressing. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. It's like, you know, you're you're asking for affordable housing, but then you're also making it so that to push up the rents in order to be able to pay for higher real estate tax. Honestly, I think it was down to put in place better zoning so that you can allow for easier multifamily development, easier approvals, um, and and be able to to develop more affordable housing. Right. Yeah, no, I think that is that is really, really important. Um, but then you've also got the other the other side of the coin, which is you know urban planning, right? Where the people wanted to live, you know, call it millennials, call it young professionals. They want to live in and around urban centers. They they don't want to have to drive twenty minutes to get to their work or drive thirty minutes to get to the shopping center. They want to live and eat and party and you know socialize in downtown. Yeah. suburbs which is since the last recession we've yeah. seen a big uptick in in urban centers um being regentrified uh so it's sort of like this, this hugely weird dichotomy we've got right now which is on one hand we've got to provide the workforce housing because the people who make the cities tick don't have anywhere to live on the other hand you've got these higher paid um, younger people or not even younger people just high paid people wanting to live in and around urban centers so they don't have to commute as much they don't have to um, spend time in the car or on the on public transport they can just get to work and that's driving rents up and that's driving you know cost of living up and all that sort of stuff so it is a really really weird uh, time that we're living in uh, coupled with the fact that money's cheap right now Right, yeah. like we can get interest rates at at three four percent. You know, of course, like it's I don't see any time soon slowing down um, of more development yeah. and 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 the next retail strip center or the next you know downtown hip thing that or bar or you know because downtown LA where I live is booming right now. You got stuff coming, cranes coming out of the the, the wazoo. Um, so. 
It's a really weird time. What do you, what do you think the future holds in terms of the economy, world, states, statewide, I should say, and um, and where we're headed? I love it. Big question. Um, I, I would say, honestly, it, it's going to come down to cities and developers and investors getting creative. Uh, I feel like that's where that's where the magic happens. So something that we've been working on is looking at opportunities where we can do affordable housing without tax credits. It's really like the the magic happens when you're when you're being creative, when you're when you're looking at this creatively from a creative finance perspective. I think that's where a lot of the magic happens. So we've been looking at and and working on a few developments in major metros and and Nashville and Tennessee, well, affordable developments, working with not using any tax credits and actually creating something that has 80% AMI, that has um, market rate housing all mixed in. So you have affordable and market rate together and being able to get that same tax abatement that we talked about earlier. Um, and that allows you to create a true mixed income property where you can have, you know, the, the young millennials who want to be in the market rate housing and, and, and those that are in the workforce um, all living together and being able to provide housing for both of them um, and being creative about it and not having to rely on um, the tax credits, which are usually a very cumbersome process and a very rigorous like regulation specific process that is very hard to navigate. And I think that's another reason why most of developers or investors don't want to even bother with affordable housing you know it's like why bother learning something if we're if we're making a bunch of money here in the market rate side right no i think but that's and then why also take away income from a from a municipality where they could use that income from taxes to you know for other social good um so it's again but people have to come to the table. And if you're not willing to come to the table and talk about it and have developers, developers, lawmakers, um, building and safety, uh, you know, change happen, uh, th- thinking outside the bubble, like one of the things you said before, the thinking, thinking bigger, um, we're not going to be able to come to resolve this issue. It's just going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. Because one of the other things we, don't, we haven't even talk, spoken about is the, the wage growth. Like cost of living is going up, but wage growth is not keeping on par with it, but there's just another huge big elephant in the room that no one really wants to talk about. Talk about we can talk about the, the, the development side and, and, and tax abatements and getting workforce yeah. housing. But if you don't have wages increasing to a livable wage where people can afford to live in places and afford to eat, um, then that's also a huge issue. And 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 again something that we need to talk about, you know, as a community, as a, as, as a, as an investor. So, um, you know, I definitely look at when we go and buy properties, we look at the average demographic and what they earn per household, how that compares to the national average. And I want to be above the national average. And then I look at the, the, the house prices and what the average house price is in and around the area and look at, okay, well, does the mortgage for, for a single family house in, in the sort of five mile radius also comp- is more than what my highest rent is going to be because that's the affordability aspect, right? If, if you can afford a $1,300 rent or $1,500 rent, maybe you can go and afford to buy a house. Um, so there's all these things we look at as investors, um, but also if the, the, the economy keeps growing and where it's growing, you know, employers have to give breaks to, to 
employees to to afford to live in and I, I don't care where you're investing whether it be in LA New York San Francisco or Texas or North Carolina or Alabama these are all the same sort of factors that are that are playing are contributing to the the housing crisis that we have uh, today and you want to yeah. add anything to that yeah you know that that reminds me there's there's been a lot of occurrences recently where um, where companies are actually going out of their way to partner with or become developers themselves uh, because they want to create affordable housing options for their own employees. So you have, mm. you know, Kings Island outside of Cincinnati, an amusement park building housing for their seasonal employees because they can't afford anything nearby and they can't afford to have their employees miss work or or skip out on work because they just can't afford to get there. Um, you know, you have it up in the mountains, up by all the ski resorts in Aspen, because none of the employees that work the the ski lifts can even afford to live there. So it, you right. you have companies actually taking a more proactive role and saying, hey, you know, the the economy is not really finding that equilibrium for affordable housing, so we have to take it into our own hands. So I think that's what you're going to mm. see more and more is companies are going to help their employees. And then also on the healthcare side as well. I mean, we're looking at partnering with some major um, insurance companies that are saying, hey, if there's a way we can keep some of our highest um, cost members on our, on our insurance, if we can keep them out of the um, like cyclically going back into the ER, if we can give them a good quality place to call home and, and it's a stable home, where we can provide services on a regular basis, then we can keep those same people that tend to cost us, you know, 50 to 80,000 a year. If we pay, you know, 10,000 a year or 15,000 a year for the rent, then that will exponentially cut down on our operation cost from an insurance perspective. You know, it's like, it's, right. it's all of these different companies in different industries realizing that housing actually does play a really key role into their workforce. And so once it right. hits their bottom line, then they're like, hey, we gotta, we actually have to pay attention to that. We actually have to do something about that because nobody else is. And, and this is our company at stake, our employees at stake. Um, so I think that's going to be something that's going to take hold more and more is the, the private part of the economy. The corporations are going to say, hey, we got to do more of this ourselves. Right. No, it, and it's, it's true. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, we live in the land of capitalism, and and it is for good or worse, for good or bad. It's uh, it's 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 leading to this where you have to have the private come to the table, the government come to the table, um, investors, and obviously the consumers coming to the table, and, and trying to figure out a, a way around it, and not not everyone can, you know the big the big companies are going to be able to win all the time. There has to be a bit more socialistic viewpoint in order to have exactly what you're just saying how people, their workers having a place to live because if they don't have a place, they can't afford, you know, up around the ski resorts or at a, an amusement park or, you know, if we, we're an insurance company, we've got to house someone. If they've they, if they got a roof over their head, they're more likely not to cost us more because they're living on the streets or something like that. So it is a huge issue, massive issue. And don't get us wrong, people who are listening to this show, 
this is we're not even scratching the surface of the complexities involved and then you've got to add in the layer and complexities of the state by state so some states are yeah. different to other states and so um it's it's a huge issue something that we're not going to be able to solve in our <laughs> podcast but uh but it's it's a good we have to talk about it right and if we're not talking about it as investors as business owners ourselves how do we ever move forward towards a solution and it definitely, you know, you've reinvigorated, inspired me, I should say, invigorated me to to be more and <laughs> and be better with with my with my own portfolio. You know, how can I be better with my property management company in order to allow maybe not Section Eight, but sort of lower income people to to come in and and, and rent, um, but also so I can still profit and make my investors happy. So I've got to you know dance that fine right. line. Um, but but it is the social good of making sure that you know you're helping your neighbor, help thy neighbor, as they as they talk about. I'm not religious, but you know that definitely says it in the Bible. <laughs> so um, it's it's about being a community, and to what you're saying earlier in the in the show about what your right. why is, creating that community is so important. And if you don't have a community around you, and and you have the haves and the have-nots, which is definitely where we are right now, and it's becoming worse and worse. We're on a path towards destruction, and and I and and that leads to conflict, and that leads to all sorts of other issues. That again, we're not going to cover in one one episode. But well, um, something I, I want to add in, yeah, just something sure. I want to add in. Read is, um, you know, what on the value add side, one of the, you know, and we do some value add work as well. Is is the what you are able to do by investing in these communities. And by actually, you know, you're, you in a sense are increasing the life of that property, right? Like you are helping it stay available for renters for the foreseeable future. And by doing that, you turn are actually increasing the, the, afford the availability of housing stock in that area. And usually as the life of property goes on, you know, it does kind of find that middle ground balance between, um, you know, it becomes part of the older housing stock and then also um, finds that level of affordability. So in, in essence, you are increasing the longevity of the property, which helps the long-term supply and demand, um, which helps create more affordable housing. Very true. No, you, you are very true. It, it does you know, extend the, the horizon of these properties that, you know, in, built in the 80s or built in the 90s that will go for another 10 or 20 years. Um, but but there is still some major issues out there that we, we've, we've touched on a little bit today in the show, which has been really awesome. And I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your insight about it because you definitely sound like you're in the thick of it in, in where you are in Louisville and, and, and Nashville. So, um, but mate, I do want to be very respectful of your time. Um, at the end of every show, I like my guests to give me their top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Let's do it. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Meditation. Hands down. You do it every day? Yeah, every day. Uh, 10 to 15 minutes in the mornings. Um, it's just one of those things where I, I notice the difference in my day. When I meditate, I'm more clear. I'm more calm. I'm more centered. I'm more focused on where I want to go. Uh, and I really lose that. Um, I can tell a difference when I don't meditate. Mm. No, I, I'm exactly the same way. I, I have, I meditate before I go to sleep, but I also do a, a little thing in the morning to breathing exercise. And it's, it's, it's just something that I 
I say my my mantra for the day, whatever it might be, um, something that I'm grateful for, or whatever. But taking that five minutes before, you know, rushing out the door to walk the dog or to do something or get on the phone or it just it helps, as you said before, center. It centers yourself. And I know when I miss it and I skip it, the day's never as good. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, mate. I love it. Love it. How long have you been meditating for? Uh, about three years. Nice. Nice, man. Keep it up then. Yeah. It's going it's, it's to come back in leaps and bounds because it's, it's a muscle we don't. We don't train enough of, I can tell yeah. you that in our brain. <laughs> Mate, who's the most influential person in your career to date? Oh, man, that's tough. Um, I would say, honestly, it it has to be, and this goes back to a big part of my why is my mom. Um, so mm. she recently, I think three years ago, uh, passed away from cancer. Uh, and I was pretty young mm, when that happened. So. Hard. Um, so that it really just trying to, um, you know, fulfill her mission of impacting people and, and, you know, she helped make me who I am today. So she's been probably the most impactful. Mate, will you, uh, my condolences. I lost my mum coming up to two years ago. So very, also to cancer. So um, wow. at a very I'm young age, 66. That. So we, we, yeah, we're, we're, we, sh- we share the same we're in the same boat, big fella, and um, I'm sure both of them are looking down from above. If you believe in that, if you don't, I'm yeah. sure they're somewhere. <laughs> but they, their spirit lives on, and and uh, yeah, yeah, I, I could definitely tell that she's had a massive impact on your life, and she'd be super proud of you. So, so well done, mate. Thank you, man. What is the most influential tool in your business? Now, when I say tool, it could be a heart, you know, a phone, it could be someone, or it could be another tool, like a software tool. So what's the number one tool you use in your daily business? Uh, that's a good question. I would say, hands down, the power, uh, the power of a powerful conversation. So the power of yeah, I think it it really just comes down to like think about in your business where where is the money made, where is the impact made, where do you actually make that exponential growth in your business? It's typically in really powerful conversations with you know whether it's your brokers, your your vendor, your investors, whoever you know that's where the real difference is made in your business is when you can have powerful conversations. Um, you know, on a regular basis. Right. Yeah. No, and having these conversations right now are powerful, right? It, 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 it drives emotion. It evokes emotion. And that's, you know, we're talking about some pretty heavy stuff here on this show today about affordable housing and why it's so <laughs> fucked up. But, you know, without having these, these, uh, these, these, these emotional conversations, we can't then move to the next step of, of, of healing or whatever you want to look at it, but, but, or, or change or, or solutions. So, um, yeah, really, really important. I love that. I'm going to use that a little more. You know, that, that, that's such a cool thing that you think of that that's your tool in your business, powerful conversations. So, yeah. awesome stuff. Mate, what has been the biggest failure in your career to date? And in one sentence, what did you learn from that failure? Um, I would say, you know, I think that changes for me all the time, but um, I think I can, I can pick a few that apply to this, but I'll just pick one that, that stands out. I, I think that, um, you know, not, in, so there's a project that 192 units, we had the funding all lined up and it was in Lafayette, Louisiana. And the, the project, basically the economy tanked 
and the numbers no longer worked. Our rent levels just completely dropped. You know, it just sinked completely down. And uh, and after that, we were, I was just pushing so hard to get that deal. And so that at the time felt like the biggest failure because it was like, I, I'm literally doing everything in my power. You know, I've always been told, don't give up, don't give up, don't give up. And here I was not giving up. And I just felt like I was spinning my wheels for nothing. And, you know, in a sinking local economy, you know, it, it just felt like I wasn't going anywhere. And so eventually decided to call it a day, you know, in the deal and call it quits. And that, that was so frustrating. We had $750,000 in pre-development in, into that deal. And so that to me felt like the biggest failure. But lo and behold, about a year and a half later, we had a local bank say, hey, do you have that deal? It, it, it ended up coming around. They needed a deal in their own backyard. We got it closed three months later. Um, so it ended up being a, a success, but at the time it just felt like a massive, massive failure that, you know, you spin your wheels forever on something, but I think it teaches a valuable lesson of like, sometimes it's better to let things go. Um, mm. and you know, if it's meant to be, it'll come back around. Yeah, no, I love it. It's such a, such a humbling experience when you have $750,000 and you're just trying to squeeze the, yeah the juice out of a rock and it just yeah. turns to stone right and it just doesn't happen <laughs> and it's uh it's it's crazy but it's it, it, things happen and, and and stuff happens and life happens and okay you got to roll with it and and you i think the the biggest lesson that i'm hearing from you is is that surrender learning to surrender when something is not going your way and yeah. and it's okay to surrender right it's okay to be okay that didn't work out okay i i gave it my all and you know that you gave it your all your all and sometimes yeah. the market's going to be the market and you can't you can't dictate that so yeah, yeah learning surrender is i think is a, is a huge thing mate last question where can people reach you to continue the conversation they want to be a little bit more in your sphere where do they go yes i would say the first place they should go is on instagram at evan holiday holiday is h o l l a d a y um very active over there um, so send me a DM if you want to connect. Also check out my website, evanholiday.com and the podcast Monumental, which Reed is coming out shortly. So be on the lookout, guys. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to, to, to jump in in this show. Um, we had a bit of technical issues, but we've seen, I think we got through it all right. Um, some of the big takeaway things that I took away from our conversation is the ability to get invigorated about a cause in which we're all involved in some way or another that is providing housing and affordable housing to, to people in order to keep the economy moving forward in order to be and understand how we as investors are, are impacting the local you know economy the local climate how does how does us going in and renovating these properties and jacking the price up or the rent how does that affect the local economy and the local workers and so being mindful of that i think is the biggest one of the biggest lessons i've taken away from today's show um, but also about thinking bigger you know and, and having a bigger mission statement and having a, a why to drive you forward and i think you're really really clear on yours and i think that's really well done because a lot of people i get on this show aren't and um and so kudos to you because follow because you you do have your your path laid out for you in front of you and i know you're going to be extremely successful um mate did i leave anything out of that summary no man that was beautiful i love it well mate again thank you so much for dropping by enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon yes thank you man 
Well, there you have it. Another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Evan and just some of the things that are involved in the complexities of bringing workforce housing to fruition. You know, we talked about the government, we talked about costs, we talked about tax abatements, and we all talked about a little all that on the sort of the new construction, but how does that affect the existing construction? And so uh, I really enjoyed my uh, conversation with Evan here today. If you do have any questions for Evan, please hit him up on Instagram or at his website at evanholiday.com. I want to thank you all for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. The best way to give back to this show is to give it a five-star review on iTunes. It only takes two minutes uh, and we're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave and remember, go give life a crack. Thank you.